I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with esteemed authors and public figures. Today, I'm interviewing Ronald White, one of America's leading biographers, about his new book titled On Great Fields, The Life and Unlikely Heroism of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain a much-needed cradle-to-grave biography of Chamberlain, one of the great heroes of the Battle of Gettysburg, who later became governor of Maine, president of Bowdoin College, and one of the most outstanding leaders in oral history of the Civil War up until the 20th century. The book came out on October 31, 2023, and we did the interview in front of a live audience in Dallas on January 17, 2024. Enjoy. It's my great uh, honor and privilege to have my friend Ron White here. Ron and I have been doing programs together for a long time over many of his books. What you may not realize is Ron is an ordained Presbyterian minister graduated from Princeton Theological Seminary. Uh, He's been a minister. He's been a college professor. Uh, He's been a New York Times best-selling, prize-winning historian. And he seems to like Dallas because he always comes here when his books come out. So please welcome Ron White. Now, Ron, I think... As an open question, people always want to know, why did you write this book? You've covered four books on Lincoln, a wonderful biography on Ulysses Grant. Uh, Both of those men obviously were presidents of the United States. Your subject here is not a president. So what led you, this book in the research and the writing was a six-year project. That's a big chunk of your life to devote to a subject. What was it about Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain that called you to write this book? Thank you, Talmadge, and thank you, everyone, for inviting me to be here today. I was with you when I wrote my book, American Ulysses, the biography of Ulysses S. Grant. And one evening in the Jonathan Club in downtown Los Angeles, I live in Pasadena, a question is always asked, and what is your next book? And so I somewhat flippantly, I think, said, well... I'm not exactly sure, does anybody have any ideas? (laughs) And this fellow in the back of the room, now I know his name, Mark Lipsis, literally stood up and shouted, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. Well, I consulted my literary agent, my publisher. We thought, this is a timely book. We've had uh, uh, other biographies, but they focused on him as the hero of Little Round Top. We need a full, definitive biography. Cradle to grave. Cradle to grave. So Ron, I, let me trade mics with you. This is better. Okay, thank you. So I traveled 396 miles from Pasadena, California, to Brunswick, Maine, over and over and over again to become a Mainer and to begin to do the research on this remarkable person. I think you misspoke. How many miles? 3,096. I think you said 396. 3,096 3, from California to Maine. I, I, I thought that sounded a little, a little short. Now, when you have a cradle-to-grave biography, uh, you get to understand, how did this person come to be? How did this 
Civil War hero who became governor of Maine for four terms, who became president of a college. What happened during his formative years that would create such a character, such wisdom, such communication skills? What stands out for you, Ron, about Chamberlain's childhood, adolescence, that, that shaped him to become the, the hero that he would become? Well, one of my convictions, Talmadge, and everyone, is that we often don't spend enough time on the formative period of a person's life. We skip very quickly, modern biographers, I think, over the youthful part of a person to their adult accomplishments. Ulysses S. Grant said once, the reason I do not, I do not read biographies is because they do not tell enough about the young person who becomes the adult figure. So I didn't realize it, but of the 20 chapters in my book, five are on this formative period. He grew up in the little town of Brewer, Maine. His parents were deeply religious. They were, in a sense, 19th century versions of Puritanism. Puritanism has gotten a bad name, but I think it's overdue to have a good name because it's all about the life of the mind. This is the person who became the young Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. He went to Bowdoin College where he mastered, get this, seven languages, seven languages. It was a classical education the study of Greece and Rome. And this formed who he was, but he had a great impediment when he arrived there. He was a stutterer. He was a stammerer. And the education was all about recitation. This is what it was. And he was overcome by this physical disability. But for, fortunately, a professor helped him overcome it. And then the unlikely part of the story is years later, he became professor of rhetoric at Bowdoin College. Now, not many Texans know much about Bowdoin College, but that was a fun part of the book was what it took to get in in those days, what they studied, what values they attempted to instill in their students. Talk about all those things as to why a college like that, particularly in that era, would turn out somebody like Chamberlain. Well, the folks in Maine realized it was a five-day horseback ride to Harvard, so they needed a college of their own. It was this classical education to get in, get in, you had to pass an entrance exam where you said from memory some of the great texts of Greece and Rome and the Greek New Testament. And this is the education that formed him. Why a classical education? A Harvard professor at the time said, because we are living in a self-centered age. My goodness. We are living in a self-centered age, and we have to get beyond that to have something much greater than the individual. When he got through at Bangor, he did not uh, end his formal education. Uh, talk about what his choices were and what he chose for his subsequent education. Well, his mother and father were deeply divided upon what he should do after his graduation from Bowdoin College. The father wanted him to be a military person and go to West Point. You could go to West Point after graduating from college. The father and his ancestors had a deep history in military affairs. His mother wanted him to be a minister or a missionary. He chose to go to Bangor Theological Seminary. But because he did not, did not become an ordained minister, that story has received two sentences in previous Chamberlain biographies. But I know, and you know, I'm sure people who go to seminary do not become ministers, but the theological education 
is very important in their formation. So I wanted to find out more. The problem was that Bangor Seminary, founded in 1814, went out of business in 2013. So where were the records? I found them at the Maine Historical Society and put together a full chapter, Talmadge, on those three years, which also were part of his formation. Now, long about the time that he was uh, at Bangor Seminary, uh, he met Fanny, who ultimately became his wife. And that's another fun feature in a cradle-to-grave biography is the marriage and how it impacted them. So talk about his wife uh, in, in terms of her personality and, and, and smarts, but also about their marriage. Well, Frances Caroline Adams is a fascinating person. This would surprise you or maybe shock you in terms of what people did in the 19th century. She was the seventh child, the last child. Her father was 50 years old, old enough to be her grandfather. So he and his wife decided to give, to give Fanny to the, his younger cousin and his wife who were in their 20s. So at age four, they gave her to the younger cousin who was the minister, George Adams, of the First Congregational Church of Brunswick. I wanted to find out who was Fanny. So this is who she is. Hold this in my hand here. <clears throat> Her high school teacher, Mr. Alfred Pike, had given a, an assignment that students should write a, a, an essay and use verbs ending in F-Y. She knew that Mr. Pike did not exactly approve of her humor, and so she wrote this essay. This is to certify, notify, exemplify, testify, and signify my obedient disposition. And I hope that it will gratify, satisfy, beautify, and edify my teacher, and pacify, modify, and nullify his feelings of dissatisfaction towards me. Please do not exclaim, oh, fie, when reading this essay. Fanny was smart, and she knew it. But she also had struggles in her life. Fortunately, in writing this biography, I discovered that her father, now George Adams, wrote this remarkable diary, and he often said in the diary, poor Fanny, poor Fanny. She was struck often with depression. She had problems with her eyes. She ultimately went blind in the latter part of her life. So they were married, and they had, a, at the beginning, a very romantic, passionate marriage, but something happened in the midst of it. We're not exactly sure why. He was away a lot, both as Civil War soldier, as governor. She was away a lot, going to Boston and New York all the time, leaving her children behind as she went on shopping trips. And at one point, something happened. And he wrote this letter to her, please do not say to your friends that I'm abusing you, that I have pulled your hair. Do you want to for move forward into a divorce? Unfortunately, then the other side of the equation is blank. People in the 19th century often burned their correspondence. We don't get her response to this. What happened in this marriage? <clears throat> but I believe that somehow the marriage was repaired it became a very companionable marriage, and they were married for 50 years until she died. All right, you mentioned a minute ago that after he overcame his stuttering issue, uh, and after he uh, graduated from the seminary, 
he became a college professor at Bowdoin and a professor of rhetoric, uh, public speaking, oratory. So what kind of a speaker was he, uh, both as a teacher but, but as a, a presenter? He was a remarkably eloquent speaker. After the Civil War, he became the leading speaker, and he peppered his speeches with the Bible, with quotations from Dante and Goethe, with allusions to Greece and Rome. He had this wide-ranging ability. To us, it might appear that it's very flowery, it's very dramatic. People would speak for an hour or an hour and a half when they gave lectures, but he became a celebrated speaker, and I think this is part of the maybe not fully known story of who he becomes after the Civil War. Well, let's talk about the Civil War. Here he is. He's a learned professor. He can speak seven languages in this sleepy little town in Maine. And then all of a sudden, the southern states secede. We have a Civil War. He's 32 years old. How does Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain respond to the Civil War? He watched as his students uh, signed up for the Union Army, two signed up for the Confederate Army, there were no electives in those days. So he would have taught every single student who signed up for the Union Army. And he must have been concerned. But then in July, June of 1862, you may remember, Lincoln offered a proclamation saying we now need 300,000 more men for the Union Army. So he volunteered to the governor of Maine. Governors were looking for outstanding persons, maybe a politician, in this case a professor, who could raise a 1,000-man regiment. So he readily accepted Chamberlain and said, I will make you a colonel. And Chamberlain said, don't do, do that. I don't deserve to be a colonel. This says so much about him. I will start at a lower rank, and I love his words, and I will learn and earn my way to something higher. So he starts as a lieutenant colonel in the Union Army, leading in a part of the 20th Maine Regiment. So talk about his transformation from being a classroom professor to leading an army in the battlefield during the Civil War. That sounds like two distinctly different personality types. How did he assume that mantle of being a leader of men in the battlefield? Thank you. I, I'm always looking for what I call pieces of the puzzle. And this is one of the pieces. How could this amiable, soft-spoken, professor at Bowdoin College become this courageous, risk-taking leader at Little Round Top. This is one of the most amazing parts of the story. It surprised people who had known him in the past. At Little Round Top, you may remember, the 20th Maine was given the assignment of defending the far left of the Union line. Uh, Governor Warren had looked up there with his spyglass and said, oh my goodness, whoever commands Little Round Top, if the Confederates get there first, they're going to be in control. So at 4.30 in the afternoon, as his men had run out of ammunition, and as men from Alabama and Texas were ascending Little Round Top, he simply says, bayonet. One word. One word. And they charged down the hill and defeated a force twice their size. Without bullets. Without bullets. <laughs> and at one moment... <laughs> A, a young Alabamian comes up to him and points his pistol at Chamberlain's head. And Chamberlain simply reaches forward and says, thank you very much, and took the pistol right out of his hand. <laughs> he could have killed him. The pistol's in Chamberlain's house in Brunswick, Maine, if you want to see it. And uh, after that, 
moments, momentous hour and a half, he became the hero of Little Round Top. Well, we always think in terms of tipping points. I think most people regard the Battle of Gettysburg as the tipping point in the Civil War. And the way your book presents it, it sounds like Little Round Top was the tipping point at Gettysburg. Is that accurate? It is. It is a very important part of, of, of Gettysburg. Yes. I should say this, though, that when Chamberlain received this recent acclaim, the novel Killer Angels, the Ken Burns Civil War documentary, and be played by Jeff Daniels in the movie Gettysburg, the Park Service guides in the 1990s at Gettysburg were a little put off, but there's a lot of other guys who deserve to be heroes. So the story is that underneath their official uniforms, they wore a T-shirt that said, Joshua who? Joshua who? So it's not always been, oh, isn't this guy great? There's other people who say, wait a second, is he getting more praise than he's due? But let's talk about that praise. I mean, here was a guy who probably, before the Killer Angels, since it had been more than 100 years since the Civil War, uh, and although Chamberlain lived a long life, he lived till 1914, 84 years old. But nonetheless, his name was largely forgotten. So then in, in, in 1974, along comes this Civil War novel, The Killer Angels, about the Battle of Gettysburg, and they make a movie of it with Jeff Daniels, as you say. And in 1990, Ken Burns brings out the documentary, The Civil War. Talk about the resurgence of interest and appreciation of Chamberlain that that book and movie and documentary brought to Chamberlain's legacy. Well, millions became his fans, and I spoke at Gettysburg a few weeks ago, and they are now undergoing a $10 million project, a two-year project to renovate Little Round Top. It's almost been overrun by the people who want to be there. So they want to keep preserve it. They want to have better signage. He's become this larger-than-life figure. But for me, it was important to say he, he is larger than life, but he's also a person of fallible. His idealism could often be stubborn. His desire to do certain things didn't always pay attention to others. He never asked the faculty at Bowdoin College, should he sign up for the Union Army? And later he apologized for not consulting anybody. He sort of just did this on his own. Maybe that's what heroes sometimes do. <laughs> well... When he had the battlefield success at Gettysburg, uh, he obviously continued uh, in his leadership of the 20th Maine. Talk about uh, the next big battle uh, that he led his, his men into at Petersburg and, and how that impacted his life. Yes, 10 months later, as the Union Army was closing in on what they thought could be the end of the war, they besieged Petersburg and Chamberlain was a part of that. And as he went forward, at one dramatic moment, he was struck by a mini ball in his left hip. It shattered blood vessels. It scraped his bladder, scraped his urethra, and stuck on the far side of his right hip. Two doctors came to him and told him he would die. And so believing he would die, he wrote a letter to his wife which said, I've been told by the doctors that I will die. I simply want you to know of my faith in Jesus Christ and of my love for you. You have been a precious and beautiful wife in life and in death. I want you to live for our children. 
amazing letter. Well, then his younger brother Tom rushed over to the 20th Maine and found two other doctors who came and removed the bullet from the right side of Chamberlain. He went through three surgeries in subsequent years, but he never could repair the terrible wounds of his life. We're aware of the amputations of the Civil War, but this what was called internal wound was really much more devastating. I visited Brunswick a few weeks ago, and in his home, he couldn't even sit up straight when he was the president of the college. He literally had to lie on a couch. He was just racked with pain. He finally would die from the infections of those wounds almost 50 years later. Yeah, but keep that in mind, an almost fatal wound, and he lived another 50 years with it in constant pain. So, I mean, that's, that's pretty amazing. Uh, but, of course, the Civil War ended uh, with Lee's surrender to Grant at Appomattox, and Chamberlain was on the scene. So what role did he play in the uh, surrender? Uh... Remarkably, this non-West Pointer was asked by uh, Grant or Grant's associates <clears throat> to lead the surrender of the Confederate forces. Now, this has been another part of the acrimony about Chamberlain. A few modern scholars have said, well, did he really do that? Where is the official record? Well, my mentor and scholar at Princeton University, the great Civil War historian Jim McPherson, said all the records weren't written down at the end of this. This was happening so fast. Grant had left Appomattox. Lee had left Appomattox. So here it is. Chamberlain is asked to receive the surrender of John B. Gordon and the Confederate troops. I think that he had certainly in his own mind what Grant had done with Lee offered a magnanim magnanimous surrender. So as you can just think about this, as the Confederate soldiers came forward, Chamberlain comes to meet them. There's three to four yards separating these men and their horses. And suddenly Grant, uh, Chamberlain switches to a marching salute, which is a salute to the Confederate soldiers. Unbelievable. He wasn't saluting the Confederacy. He wasn't saluting the cause. He was saluting the courage of the Confederate soldiers. Did this really take place? Well, I went to Appomattox, and there Patrick Schroeder, the 25-year park historian, has researched this over and over and over again. And he, he shared with me his research and all of the subsequent reports that, yes, Chamberlain did lead that surrender. I think it was one of his finest moments. <clears throat> well, in fact, uh, when the Civil War ended with the surrender, there were lots of Union uh, leaders in the military and politics who were not filled with the spirit of reconciliation. Chamberlain was. We all know Lincoln was as well. But, but talk about his perspective on the importance of reconciliation and what he did to try to achieve that result. Well, again, when you talk about any value, any belief, you sort of want to ask the question, where does it come from? I think it comes from his Christian faith. I think it comes from his study of classicism at Bowdoin College. But he believed the only way the union could go forward was with reconciliation. So again and again and again, he said, I do not support the cause. I do not support slavery but I support the reconciliation with Confederate troops. 
So 30 years later, John B. Gordon, now a very prominent Southern governor, has written a book on the Civil War. He comes to Brooklyn, New York to present it. He asked several Union soldiers to sit on the stage with him. The New York Times tells this story. And when he finishes, gets to the end of his lecture, and he's telling about Appomattox, he suddenly turned and said, and here is the gentleman who offered that magnanimous surrender to us, the soldiers of the Confederacy. But it's really quite a remarkable story. Well, when the war ended, obviously he's back to real life. He returns to Bowdoin, and to go from bullets whizzing around him in battlefield glory, he ultimately won the Congressional Medal of Honor, there for the surrender, uh, knowing Lincoln, knowing Grant. All of a sudden, he's back in this sleepy little town with these college students. How did that transition go? You know, I think I, what I've learned from this, and you might think about it for the persons that you've known, perhaps a grandfather or someone who fought in World War II, this was the high moment of a person's life, and everything else seemed almost downhill. He really wasn't excited about being a professor anymore. This didn't seem really exciting to him. But the Republicans of Maine saw who he was, and they wanted him to become governor. So they elected him in 1866, just one year after the Civil War. It was only a one-year term, but he was elected once, twice, three times, four times. Four times he was elected governor of Maine. And what, during those four years, four terms, what would you say was his, his greatest achievement? What kind of a governor was he? Well, one of the things that he realized, and this was part of the Republican Party in the 19th century, certainly Lincoln and Grant, was that the government did have a positive role. He realized that Maine was struggling. People were leaving for California in the gold rush. Uh, it, it was a difficult time. The government needed to step forward and offer loans to business, offer loans to railroads, that this is the only way this state could somehow begin to industrialize. He was far behind even Massachusetts, its neighbor. And so he was a very activist kind of governor. <clears throat> All right, after he left the governor's office, he goes back to Bowdoin, but this time he's not a professor. He is the president of the college. So talk about why that job was appealing to him and what kind of, a, what kind of things happened under his leadership at Bowdoin. Well, you could imagine he loved the college, of which he had been a student and a professor. But colleges, most all of whom had been founded by Protestant denominations in the first half of the 19th century, some of them were in deep trouble economically. How could they be viable in a very changing American society? So to the surprise, I'm sure, of many, when he offered his inaugural address, he said, the college is in trouble. We've got to change our ways. We, we can't me meander on as we have in the past. The world is changing around us. But what did he mean? We have to have a new sort of curriculum, and science needed to be a part of this. Well, on the one hand, maybe this is true then and now, the alumni said, oh, yes, we need to change, but we don't like that change. <laughs> so, so he really wanted to promote science, but to those of religious faith, this was a challenge, even, even a problem for their faith. And so ultimately, his reliance on, on science didn't work. And so he resigned. But the trustees refused to accept his resignation. So five years later, he resigned again. He said, I don't think I'm really doing what you want me to do. They refused to accept his resignation. So he served for 12 years as Bowdoin College. And at his memorial service, the then president said, now we understand 
that what Chamberlain wanted to do was to offer a kind of progressive education is exactly what we're doing today. Unfortunately, it wasn't understood or appreciated in his day. Well, while he was president of Bowdoin College, there was a political upheaval in Maine, particularly in 1880, as one governor was supposed to step down and the newly elected governor was supposed to take over the position. And they essentially had almost a civil war. So talk about what that was about and what role Chamberlain played in bringing an end to that war. Well, it seems like we're almost in a civil war over the election of 2020. And we sort of think, well, this must never have happened before. It had never happened in national politics, but actually it happened in Maine. So in eight, at the end of 1879, there was an election. The Republicans won the governor, they won the House of Representatives, and they won the Senate. And everything seemed to be good. The Republicans had been in control of Maine for a long time. And then the great countout began. And the Secretary of State, actually the previous person as governor, was a Democrat, they began to count out the votes. Oh, these five votes don't count because they were not misspelled. Oh, these five representatives won't be elected because the ballot was printed in one column and it should have been printed in two columns. Oh, these 143 people from Portland, Maine, they don't count either because boom, 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 boom. And all of a sudden, the Republicans who thought they were in the lead were now in third place. There was Republicans, Democrats, and Greenbacks. And the Constitution of Maine said that if there were three elect three candidates, they would go to the House of Representatives, they would select two, and the House of Representatives would then give it to the Senate, who would select one. Men started coming to Augusta, Maine, armed to the teeth. The governor imported arms from the, the armory at Bangor. He put together a paramilitary force. People began marching to Augusta to attack what was going to take place. The governor, a Democrat, said there's only one person who can solve this problem. And he called Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain from his post as president of Bowdoin College to be the military governor of the state. So he arrives. He puts himself into his office. He dismisses the paramilitary force. He writes to Fanny that this is really a terrible situation. People are now beginning to attack me. The Republicans are attacking him, and he's a Republican. And he says, I don't have any role in this except to see that there's a fair election. So then a dramatic moment takes place. <clears throat> As the insurrectionists approach the Capitol, Chamberlain steps forth and says these words, Men, you wish to kill me. Killing is no near thing to me. I've offered myself to be killed many times when I no more deserved it than I do now. Some of you, I think, have been with me in those days. You understand what you want, do you? I'm here to preserve the peace and honor of this state until the right government is seated. Whichever it may be, it's not for me to say, but it is for me to see that the laws of this state are put into effect without fraud, without force but with calm thought and sincere purpose. I'm here for that, and I shall do it. If anybody wants to kill me, let him kill now. And with that, he opened his coat and stepped forward towards the mob. Well, Nelson Dingley, a former governor watching this whole event, 
said, at that moment, there was a breathless silence. And then a man in the crowd crawled out, by God, old general, if anybody wants to kill you, I'll kill him first. And suddenly the crowd dispersed. And he began to receive letters from all across the country praising what he had done. I think, Talmadge, this was his finest moment. He actually wrote to, to, to Tammy, Fanny, the next day, this was a second little round top. This is where he really stood forward, not in 90 minutes at the first round top, but in 12 days, the famous 12 days. Four days later, the Supreme Court met. The Republican had won the governorship. The Republicans won the House. The Republicans won the Senate. I think this is one of his finest moments. So here's a man who was a successful college professor, then a successful military leader, then a successful governor, successful college uh, president, a successful military mediator, and then he decides to try his hand at business <laughs> at the end of his life. So how did that go compared to the other successes? Well, remember, there were no pensions in those days. He had a very small military pension. There was no pension from being governor, no pension from being president of Bowdoin College. So he had to make some money, he believed, to support he and Fanny in their retirement. So Florida was just opening up, and Florida was looking for uh, famous northern persons to put at the top of a company, not to run the company, but to be the titular head. So he does this for a good 10 years, having an office on Wall Street, traveling back and forth to Florida. And I kind of laughed at the end when his young his son, Willis, finally writes to Fanny at the end of the 19th century and says, well, you know what, I always, what I've now learned, our man can't be successful at everything. <laughs> our man is so much more willing to look out for the other fellow than he is for himself. And so his success or lack of success in business was not one of his finest moments. But during the last several years of his life, uh, he became one of the leading speakers yes. to tell the story of the Civil War from a, a person who'd won the Congressional Medal of Honor, who'd had substantial contact with all these leading figures. So what role did he play in developing the oral history of the Civil War? Well, I call what took place after the Civil War the Second Civil War. This Civil War was fought not with guns, but with words. And people said, oh, that's what happened. No, that's what, no. And people began to argue and disagree about who was the hero, who was not, what really took place at Antietam, what really took place at Vicksburg. And he became known as the orator when the Society of the Army of the Potomac first get gathered in 1869, who would be their speaker? It wasn't Grant, it wasn't Sherman, it wasn't Sheridan, it was Chamberlain, because the professor of rhetoric had made himself the great figure speaking about the Civil War, and this gave him a new sort of claim. And I sort of say in my book, if, if you were to ask Chamberlain what was the most marvelous part of his life after the Civil War, he wouldn't have said governor, he wouldn't have said president of Bowdoin College. He would have said speaker about the meaning of America in the last third of the 19th century. Well, along those lines, uh, one of the main reasons why I fell in love with Chamberlain as I read your book was how he dealt with the past to inspire the future. 
So talk about his role of bringing the country forward based on a knowledge of its history. I think you and I have a very hard time understanding what it meant to believe in the Union at that time. The Union was not some abstract political idea. It was a transcendent idea. It was a religious idea. And Chamberlain, who had traveled, he was commissioner of education at the International Paris Exposition in 1878. He traveled throughout Europe, and he came back understanding that America had something distinctive to offer. And so he was really quite wonderful at elaborating and articulating what it was about America that made America such a great nation. And so to read his speeches, they're really thrilling speeches, very eloquent, and people would literally rise in applause when he finished those speeches. It wasn't just in Maine. It was in Boston and New York and Philadelphia where he was an esteemed speaker. Well, for my last question, I want to go to how you end the book and that is on the subject of what is a hero and why, obviously, uh, Ron, uh, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain is a hero to you. So why don't you speak on why he is a hero to you and what, what that being a hero truly means big picture-wise. Well, when I began Talmadge, I, I thought I'm, I'm writing another Civil War biography, Lincoln Grant. But as you and I have lived through these last six years, and some of you have already spoken to me about this this morning, I think this is not simply a 19th century story. I don't think it's simply a Civil War story. I think it's a story of the kind of persons that we want today to be our leaders. So I close with the question, what makes a hero? What beliefs, what attitudes, what experiences, what records? What accomplishments? So at the end of the book, I really turn that back over to the reader. And how are you going to respond to that question? Who do you want to be the leaders and the heroes today? Well, and as we think of today, and we think of the people who are at least our political leaders, uh, the word hero does not really come to mind uh, as we think of their various personality characteristics. So if you'd like a refreshing change to read about a truly virtuous leader, a man who for the most part, he wasn't perfect, but he, he certainly made good decisions most of the time through this very uh, diverse and varied career that covered several different uh, parts of American society, uh, I think you're going to love this book. So Ron, do you want to read one final passage before we open it up for questions? Yes, in uh, his classical education at Bowdoin College, they had a penmanship book. They taught cursive writing. <laughs> I found his, and at the top, printed by the college, it said, be virtuous and you will be happy. Virtue was a great value. The great theologian of the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards, said, virtue is the beauty of the mind. Virtue is the beauty of the mind. But at the end of Chamberlain's life, he wrote these words, Be virtuous, and you will pass through pain and suffer evil. But at the end of the grievous passage, you will find the good. You will find the good. And I just think that says so much about who Chamberlain is and why we need to discover him today. Wonderful. 
That's one of the many reasons I love Ron is he's the most passionate <laughs> historian. Uh, when he talks about Lincoln, most of the time it brings tears to his eyes. And when he goes out to speak about Lincoln, his wife says, no, you're not going to cry tonight, are you? <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, questions from the audience. Yes, sir. All right. I want to thank everybody for coming. I want to thank the sponsors. But let's say thanks to Ron White for for thank the you. Ronald White's biography of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain is a reminder of how important virtue is to having a successful life and be a successful leader, something today's political leaders are largely lacking to our detriment. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and the Washington Independent Review of Books. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with the bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.